The pre-med path can be super confusing. If you'd love some help on your path or on your applications, use the promo code PMY for pre-med years, PMY over at medicalschoolhq.net and get some help from some of our experts, former directors of admissions, admissions officers, other experts. We have a small team ready to help you today. Again, that's promo code PMY to get a discount on our services at medicalschoolhq.net. The Pre-Med Year, session number 540. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. I have an amazing guest, one of our newest advisors here on the Medical School HQ team. If you didn't know, we do one-on-one advising to help students with their applications, with their pre-med journey, their pre-med pathway, and so much more. Our one-on-one advising is what supports us to do everything else that we do for free for so many students out there every day, every year. So if you are interested in some one-on-one advising, potentially working with Dina, our guest today, go to medicalschoolhq.net and check check out that advising tab at the top. We're going to talk all about Dina's path into medical school admissions and advising and some help for some non-trads and and all pre-meds out there. Before we jump in, though, I want to remind you that we're sponsored by Blueprint MCAT. Go check them out at blueprintmcat.com. Sign up for that free account, which has so many amazing free resources, a half-length diagnostic, a full-length exam, their amazing study planner tool, and so much more. Go check them out at blueprintmcat.com. Dina, welcome to the pre-med years. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on, and I'm even more excited to have you part of the Medical School HQ advising team now. Talk about um, kind of how you ended up in this pre-med, pre-health <laughs> advising world. By saying yes to <laughs> opportunities that came across uh, my path, I, m- my experience is mainly as um, an educator and a counselor and advocate for students. I was a high school guidance counselor at a public school um, and really got engrossed in um, the college admissions world. It was a passion of mine. It was my niche. I, it was like personal victories when <laughs> You know, students would get accepted to schools, especially, you know, first gen students or students who didn't even know how to apply to college. Um, And I started just saying yes to a lot of opportunities with networking, Mm -hmm. with a lot of higher ed um, organizations. And Brown University took me on to their inaugural counselor advisory board. So I represented the state of Rhode Island and I sat on their undergrad admissions Counselor Advisory Board helping, you know, write some of their supplemental questions and just giving feedback on the admissions process. And at the same time, I had um, an intern, a graduate intern um, from Providence College who shadowed me and worked with me. And she ended up going on to work at Northeastern in pre-med advising. And she picked up the phone one day 
love her. Um, and she said, hey, you're the best writer I know. You taught me everything I know. How would you like to learn how to write committee letters and work part time and be involved in pre-med advising? And I was like, well, I, you know, you got to teach me everything there is to learn. And I said, yes. And that, mm -hmm. that was it <laughs> from there. Um, I just loved the med school space. Yeah. What, what is um, it about the med school space that you felt was different or more exhilarating or I don't know about, about getting in? I think I had um, outgrown, in a way, the undergrad admission space. Um, still help a lot of public school students, which is wonderful. But I think I just wanted something more. And the complexity <laughs> um, and just the entanglement of all everything that goes on in medical school admissions, um, it was like almost refreshing to be challenged mm -hmm. in a new way to help students, you know, achieve their dreams, especially students who, you know, really love STEM and, mm -hmm. and science. Um, yeah. <laughs> Pre-meds yeah. love science and I bet yeah. they want to help people too. <laughs> that is, I that, bet is they do. That, that is fantastic. So you, yeah. you ended up at Brown as an advisor in their, mm -hmm. their SMP program, working with non-traditional yes. students and, and other students. Yeah. Talk about what that is like on, on that side of kind of tangential to medical school, right at Brown, but, but for the SMP, what was that like? Um, I loved my time at Albert Medical School. Um, I, I left a career I was in in public education after 23 years and um, said yes and took this position um, as Assistant Director of Advising Student Support and Outreach for the Masters of Medical Sciences program at Brown. It was embedded in the Warren Albert Medical School. So it was a small cohort of students, about 35 students, and it was a one-year program. They took the same courses as the M1s did. So they were basically engrossed in medical school at the same time. And so I still had that ability to advise students, work with students, work um, on their applications with them, help write their committee letters, and just working with that population of students that thought they couldn't do it mm -hmm. and thought they could not become doctors and get accepted to medical school and just had tried and failed and maybe had one application cycle that failed, maybe had two, maybe changed careers and went from engineering and decided you know, they wanted to go to medical school, students from underrepresented backgrounds. It was just very rewarding. Yeah. Um, very rewarding. Um, the results are unbelievable. And with the right, it just proved that with the right advising and the right support and the right program, um, non-traditional students can definitely get there. Yeah. So yeah. I loved it. And I I, I wanna, I wanna, before we jump into jump, jumping ahead into your career and, and your time at Stanford, I, I wanna focus on these non-traditional students because that's a lot of who we interact with as advisors at, at Medical School HQ and a lot of people who follow me, partly because they just don't have advisors at their institutions as non-trads because they're not in school anymore. So when you think about your time um, at Alpert and in the SMP program and the students who were successful there, like what? makes a successful SMP student? 
taking advantage of what that program has to offer. So um, taking advantage of the advising, of the advice, of the mentorship of the professors and the faculty, um, learning how to study again was a big part of, you know, being in that program. Some of the students hadn't been you know, in school and maybe like five years. So just learning study habits, um, keeping up with the pace of say like brain science or a micro ID class and, you know, realizing, wow, this is what med school is, is going to really be like. Um, and then taking advantage of connections with the community. So the, the program that I was a part of um, had a capstone project that paired students um, with um, like a free clinic or in, you know, a federally qualified healthcare center and students who had been out of school for a while were able to gain research experience and partner with the clinician and gain those essential skills and just took advantage of everything that the program had to offer. Um, in the end, we, you know, we generated a committee letter, the professors would write letters. So for students who'd been out of school for a long time and couldn't get those letters, um, you know, they formed relationships. So forming relationships with all of those people who can support you in the process when you apply is really important. So it, it sounds very uh, time, time intensive. Right. For a student who is a career changer, maybe they still need to work to to put food on their table, a roof over their head. Maybe they're a single parent. It sounds like maybe Alpert wouldn't be the best program for them, but there are lots of other options for SMPs or postback programs, right? There are. Yes. A lot of programs. Um, you, just, you have to do your research. Mm -hmm. Um, and know what you want to get out of the program, basically. Do you, do you want a small cohort? Do you want to be one of 150 students? Do you want MCAT prep built into the program, um, which is something that the program I was in offered? Um, do you want clinical and research opportunities on top of the academics? Yeah, lots lots of things to think about. Lots of things to consider. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're very different. The, a lot of the programs are very different. Mm -hmm. So you transitioned away from Alpert to move into medical school admissions at Stanford. What was the, the goal behind saying yes there? Um, I think that I just wanted to foster that curiosity. Um, I think leaving a profession that I was in for 23 years, um, a profession where a lot of educators are often told like you're in it for life, right? Um, it, now that I was out, it was like, oh my God, like what can I do? I can do so many <laughs> different things. And I think I was just so curious, similar to within undergrad admissions, um, I was reading for a time as a seasonal reader in undergrad admissions at Northeastern as well, knowing what happens on the other side um, and being able to bring all of the knowledge I had helping students and advising students to the admissions side. Because I always, I always would ask myself, like, do people in admissions know that this is what students are thinking or this is where they're coming from when they make up certain questions or certain deadlines? And I, I wanted to try to make an impact in that way. Yeah. Um, of course, I wanted to help evaluate applications. And I felt having worked with such a non-traditional population, 
um, I could bring that strength with me to evaluate applications in my next role and try to find those spectacular students. The needles in the haystack, so to speak. Diamonds, yes, the in, diamonds the in the rough. <laughs> diamonds in the rough. Yeah. So yeah. now that you have that experience, right? And now, now you're mm-hmm. on, on our team, looking at the SMP side, looking at the pre-health side, look or, or pre-med side, the undergraduate side, uh, writing your committee letters back in the day. And, and then from the admissions side now, do you think that that question that kind of you, you had going in of like, do they understand the <laughs> hopes and the fears and the dreams and the struggles? Uh, I, I asked this question of someone the other day, right? The, the, it seems like from a pre-med perspective, and, and I, I talked to lots of pre-meds, that the admissions committees sit in their ivory tower and just make these rules and they aren't really in touch with what's going on. Do you think that's a fair assessment from the pre-med world or no? I think two things. Um, I think that there is so much that happens behind the scenes, Right. It is like such a huge production. Um, it's like putting on the Macy's Day Parade, <laughs> the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Like it looks everything looks splendid to the viewer, but all the work that goes on behind the scenes is um it it's daunting. There there is so much procedurally, operationally. Um, just making sure that everything is up and running. There's so many pieces. Yeah, um, like like what without without specifics, right? In general, like what kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah. So, for example, if if a student is admitted, right, mm-hmm. you you get that phone call that congratulations, we're offering you acceptance, and it's great. And then the next day, they're expecting to be able to go onto their portal right? And see their acceptance and move forward. Like, how do I fill out financial aid forms? How do I move forward with getting my transcripts over? Like, they have to be in a system, right? So um, just facilitating all details like that, like technicalities of putting newly accepted students into a system and making sure financial aid is aware. And there's just so much that goes on behind the scenes. So I think that um, admissions is a busy place. Um, and it's the same thing with undergrad admissions too. It's just, um, it's a grind. In the words of one of my good friends who's uh, works at Brown. It's it's a grind, and um, there's not a lot of time to do other things and for outreach. And I think one of the biggest holes or absences there is um, that transparency and that connection to really um, working with pre-med advisors and working with pre-meds to just build those relationships and help answer questions so that it doesn't seem, you know, they know that there's definitely not a team sitting in an ivory tower. (laughs) I'll tell you that (laughs) that does not happen. Um, So in terms of right, that lack of, of outreach to advisors, maybe in the surrounding area to pre-med students who may be interested in those schools. Do you think that's, intentional to to keep secrets or do you think it's just under-resourced and don't have time to do it i don't think it's intentional i don't because at the end of the day um 
you know, admissions wants to find future doctors, right? They, they're they so, like, you're excited to read applications and, you know, make these dreams come true, but there's just not a lot of time mm. um, and resources, similar to, you know, how there's a lack of pre-med advising in undergrad. There's just not a lot of time or resources to do it. Um, yeah. I really wish that there was. I do. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the the biggest misconceptions I think students have with the admissions process is this term holistic uh, admissions, right? Like mm-hmm. it's okay that I have a 2.9 GPA and a 480 MCAT. I have really good extracurricular activities. And because they they say on their website, they, they use holistic admissions, I'm going to be okay. But that's not necessarily the case, right? Talk, talk about what in your mind, holistic admissions is and and where stats still play a role potentially? Yeah, holistic is, is whole, right? Mm-hmm. So it's looking at all of the information that you've provided, like the entire part of your package that you've presented um, as part of your application, your, your stats, your experiences, your story, your background, your writing, your science aptitude, um, just everything. And so I think um, where there could be some miscommunication, particularly like with an example, like you just mentioned with somebody who maybe has a, like a 2.9 and a 485 MCAT, and they're still going to look at me. You, at the end of the day, you still have to um, complete a really demanding and rigorous education, right? Mm-hmm. Science curriculum. And um, admissions needs to know that like you're going to be able to do it because they they want to accept people who walk through the door and then finish and matriculate. So, um, you know, taking a chance on somebody who maybe has not passed any science class in their life or has struggled through every single biology, chemistry, physics class in their life, like who knows if they're going to be able to make it through that demanding curriculum and what kind of kinds of resources they're going to need. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's that's an interesting perspective that I I was having that conversation at, at a conference with uh, another team of, of deans and directors of admissions specifically about that. Right. If, if we have a student who has a three point four, three point five, who has maybe a little bit of a lower MCAT score, then the potential expectation is we may need to support this student a little bit more through the through their med school process, right? At least the, the preclinical years more specifically. And a school knows what resources they have available and whether they're successful supporting those types of students. And the schools that don't have the resources and aren't successful doing that are gonna be like, you can't come to our school. Like, we're not saying you can't be a doctor. We're just saying we can't support you at our school. So go find another school that can. And I, I think that's an important kind of mindset for students to have. I, I wonder if you agree in terms of like understanding for the student that you're not going to be a fit at every single medical school. And that's the point and that's okay. Yes, it is okay. It's that's life, right? You're not going to be a good fit at every job you're in or every relationship you're in. Um, you know, there is, a place for you and it will be the right place for you. But um, I think that 
that also ties to the mission of a school as well, because, uh, for example, if an institution is very research focused and research heavy, and that is made very, very clear in their mission statement, and you have no research at all, mm-hmm. nothing, and you're applying, you know, are you a good fit for that school? You really don't tie in yeah. to where they envision having their medical schools head in terms of research and scholarly projects and um, what the institution wants to gain. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I give this example all the time. I was at the UC Davis conference, I think, and, and was speaking to an admissions committee member. I, I forget if it was the director of admissions or not, um, at UCSF and, and right, big academic, big research heavy institution. And he's like, hey, tell your audience, we don't just look for students with research. And so there's this like, this differing view of like, we expect a lot of uh, research from our students, right? We have a capstone project maybe, or we have this kind of longitudinal research that we expect. Talk about potential ways that a student may show the ability to do research without having research. Is that something that that you're used to picking out of an application? Or do, do, again, depending on the institution, it's like you either have it or you don't, and we're not going to go searching for other things. Um, I think it's just, well, two-part question, right? Um, there are ways definitely to get research it might not be academic research, but you could be, um, you know, working at um, a women's clinic and recognize a need for, you know, more um, education for like lactation or something and take it upon yourself to like, you know, talk to every single patient and ask what their experiences and, you know, just quantitative research there and put something together, but that's not academic research. So that's the first part to the question. And the second part is there's not a lot of time in admissions. Um, I, I was talking to our other new admissions advisor this morning <laughs> for a while, Dr. Crispin, and we were like, there's just, there's not a lot of time. Yeah. Um, it would, it would be wonderful to have an hour to sit with an app, every application and say, see if I can find research or find where they volunteered or made an impact. There's just no time for that. Not with applicant pools in the thousands and thousands. Yeah. A lot of students are afraid, right? They, they, they go on to the, I'm afraid (laughs) they go on to the MSAR and they see these median MCAT scores of 517, 518. And they're sitting there with their 510, which is below the 10th percentile. How afraid should students be on those numbers that the MSAR produces? It's an average, right? It's an average. It's don't let it dissuade you. Mm. Um, You know, I've read applications from, you know, spectacular candidates, like people who are going to change the world and their MCAT score maybe you know, was way above or way below that mean. Um, don't let it dissuade you. If you feel as though you're a good fit for a school and a program and you align with their mission, um, you know, you just, I don't think it's, and I think Dr. Crispin would agree, um, I don't think that you should be so hyper-focused on it. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. 
it's yeah, it's interesting. Students, they they be like, but if if I have limited funds, I'm like, I understand, and I still don't think you should limit yourself based on yeah. stats. I think that is a culture um, that that is something that probably that whole, oh gosh, I'm going on a rabbit hole here, but that whole concept of like, you know, the standardized testing world, right? There, for a lot of these students, the first exposure to that was applying to college, right? And needing to take the SAT and ACT and being, and being told over and over, you don't have the right test scores to get into Harvard. You don't have the right test scores to get into UCLA. And there, it's almost like they've been brainwashed. Like I need a it's just so different. It's so different. And, um, just be who you are. Yeah. Be who you are. (laughs) It's so fluffy though. And, and people want concrete objective, like just tell me what I need to do. Concrete, What I need to do. I know it's arbitrary. And it's, um, I think it's also difficult because it's a process that's out of your hands after that application is sent off that you've, spent hours and hours and hours editing and, you know, just working on for so long, the rest of the process is out of your hands. And I think that's, it's, that's difficult. It's just a waiting game. Yeah. I, I think part of the problem is a lack of transparency as well, right? The, In communication. The, yes. the MSAR has this information, yes. right? It has median MCAT, median, median GPA. This year they added mean and standard deviation, which is great. It adds a little bit more transparency. But it's still not saying, hey, at this school, this is the minimum MCAT score that we'll look at. This is the minimum GPA, like an honest number, not some like, oh yeah. But every school is different. Every school is different. Correct. But I wish every school would say like, this is the minimum for for our school. There was a uniformity. Yeah. Yeah. Talk, talk about that. Why uniformity versus just letting schools be different and let them be transparent. I just think it would streamline the process for everyone and make it so less stressful. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But again, um, you know, that all ties to, you know, who's, who's funding, where, where does funding come from for these institutions, state institution? uh, It's one thing to say, maybe state medical schools, right, in California, or say, Texas, or Florida, um, all do the same thing in a uniform way. Mm -hmm. Um, Similar to TMDSAS, right? They have a lot of similar processes, because they're all state funded. Most of the schools in Texas are. But private institutions have endowments, and um, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a business, right? Yeah, got to make make money yeah. to make money. <laughs> yeah, and then hopefully they'll turn that endowment into scholarship money, like NYU, and say, "Hey, free free yeah. medical school for everyone now from now on." That so would be wonderful. Uh, obviously, Stanford is a big name school that. of students will know of. Again, without giving out secrets, in general, for for students, we're not going to force secrets. For students (laughs) who are interested in going for one reason or another, right? It's it's their own prerogative that want to go to a Stanford, a Yale, a Harvard, or whatever. What do you think it is about those students that get into those schools? Um, what, what is it about their application? Is it 4.0, 526, 528? Um, or is there, the, the term that I personally hate, and you may love it, is, is X factor, right? What is it about an application? Like you know, I thought when I went into my role in admissions, like 
I was really curious about what, right? Like, how do I find these students and evaluate these students? And how am I going to be able to find them in 9,000 applications? And um, they stand out. They just stand out. And the rest of the pool will be amazing doctors at amazing medical schools. But for that particular school and the mission and what they give what they want out of an applicant, they just stand out. And I don't like the term X factor, but it's more like chain, like being an agent of change mm -hmm. um, and making an impact. And how much impact have you made mm -hmm. already? And how much will you contribute? What can you contribute that is different from everybody else? And what can you contribute and foster that contribution and you know, desire to want to go out into the world and make an impact. Like we know that accepting you means like when you walk out the do door here, you're going to make a difference in the world. Yeah. Um, so, and, you it, know, it sounds like maybe you, you agree with or, or align with a little bit how I've kind of historically talked about how students should write their activity descriptions is less of a job description and more of that impact, right? What impact have you been able to make in this role at, to, to allow the medical schools to see yes. who you are and the impact that you make? And then even uh, more specifically for the, a question about like, why should we select you? Um, how I tell students is, is don't focus on just me, 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 but do, hey, look at me and here's how I can help my community based on, on what I, uh, who I am and what I can bring. Yes. Yes. So that, um, so that for, comes across in an application. So for example, I, you know, there's um, a food pantry that recently opened up in um, an underserved area in Rhode Island where I'm from and um, have a few um, former students who are, you know, it, it just opened. So they needed help. And I said, these students would be great for it. And they're volunteering. Um, but recognizing a need once you're there mm -hmm. is a big part of it. Like, oh, we realize we need more help. We want to go into different communities and college campuses and, you know, do our own food drives on campuses and bring it back here. And just going the extra mile and really taking things to another level, yeah. not just showing up. Not just it's so easy up. to just yeah. show up, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. not just... Hey, look! I was a member of the club. Hey, hey look! I <laughs> I went and did my time exactly. and checked the box at the at the soup kitchen. But it's like, hey, I went to the soup kitchen, and and I noticed that lots of people weren't coming, and I found out what the issue was, and then I arranged for travel for the people who weren't coming. Exactly. Like just just making exactly. making stuff happen. Making stuff happen, a mover and a shaker. Yes. Yeah. And I think that a lot of um, pre-med students think they just have to check the box. I have clinical, I have research, yeah. I have volunteer work. Well, I mean, when, you know, when you're looking at um, admissions, like that's, you know, that's a bare compared minimum. To, it's a bare minimum compared yeah. to students who didn't just show up yeah. and actually took it a step further. Yeah. For students who maybe lack stats, is that how you stand out, right? Obviously, the, the way that I word it is you have to show academic capability, right? First and foremost, you have to give medical schools confidence that you're going to pass medical school. And so whatever that bare minimum is for that school, 
that that's a bar that you have to cross. But above that, is it really just those activities? Is it is it letters of rec? Are there are there certain things you're seeing letters of rec wise? What else do you think it is? Where the holistic word comes in, it's 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 everything. You know, Um, the letters of recommendation definitely matter. Um, You know the breadth and depth of activities matter. Um, your voice matters, your background matters, like the, you know, just your personal statement and the way that you're answering secondaries, every piece matters. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about personal statements. Obviously, again, you're an advisor with us now and and you're going to help lots of students write their personal statements one-on-one or through application Academy. Uh, I have talked to deans of admissions who said personal statements a waste of time. We we just don't look at it. It's it, it doesn't help. Um, based on your experience um, from from your days at Brown, Stanford, just general knowledge of what's going on out in the world uh, in medical school admissions, do, do you do you think the personal statement's still important? Should we putting should we be putting as much emphasis on it? But I'm a, I'm like, you know, I'm a writer. I'm a person who has a strong English background and humanities background. And I just, um, you know, going back to how I was trained to be an undergrad college counselor, like it is the only piece of an application that is in your voice. It's one thing to see stats. It's one thing to see um, transcripts. It's one thing to read the voice of a professor and other letter writers, Mm -hmm. but the piece of writing that you are presenting is in your voice and authenticity has to shine through. It's also um, a way for schools to see if you can write because there are, um, you're going to write a lot doing research projects and, you know, you can't, that's not going to go by the wayside in medical school. You're going to be writing. Um, how, how so do you, I do think it's important. How do you balance that? It's in my voice. And yet, if someone works with with someone like you, how do you how do you balance keeping stuff in someone's voice when you're advising them on how to write their personal statement or giving them feedback? Extraction. Pulling. <laughs> it's my favorite part of advising and counseling is just extracting somebody's story and um, just helping them to you know, think of things in different perspectives that maybe they didn't think of before. Like maybe they were just telling a straightforward story before, but you're pulling out more meaning, more meaning and more, um, you know, just how it changed your life and how it changed you. Um, And just kind of guiding students on the right path to um, ultimately come up with a personal statement that, you know, um, is more spectacular than, you know, what they originally had. Yeah. When you look at interview prep, right? Again, a big part of what we do is helping students with their interview prep. A big part of the admissions process at the majority of schools is still doing interviews. Uh, There's only one school that I know of that doesn't do interviews, which is is strange, but that's their their thing. Um, what is it about the interview process that schools are looking for? Um, I mean, I, so I've seen both sides of this because in my role at Brown, I did do a lot of mock interviews um, with all of our students that were applying. So, um, you know, just doing mock MMIs, mock one-on-ones, 
Um, and just getting students used to talking about themselves, I think is the hardest thing. Um, and just being personable. Um, and I think in terms of what schools are looking for, they're looking to see if you're a good fit for the school. They're looking to see if there's any red flags, right? Um, how you communicate, um, how you convey your thoughts, um, you know, in terms of like some, you know, the competencies and ethical issues and situational judgment tests and all that kinds of stuff. Just um, can you think on your feet? Being a doctor, you know, you are one. Uh, you're going to have to think that way and, um, you know, be able to just speak and communicate with people. So I think the interview is a great tool to just get to know um, an applicant. Somebody could appear very, very differently on camera and in conversation um, than they do on paper. Yeah. And for some students, it's a strength. Um, some students, you know, are just wonderful communicators and are very personable and charismatic. And um, they're excited for that opportunity to have their personality shine through. Yeah. Are virtual interviews here to stay, do you think, for most schools? I think so. I think it's it's so much I think it's so much easier. There's so much that goes into interview day. Um it's there's a lot of legwork there's a lot of organizing um it's not just it like admission staff interviewing you it's you know we we need to find faculty we need to find staff we need to find professors we need to find alumni and just organizing the schedules of all of those people um a majority of whom are you know, in medicine and have crazy schedules and are traveling and on rounds and it's just it's a lot. So I think that it's just, um, it's it's just easier, but I don't, you know, I don't know. I think they're here to stay. Yeah. That would be good. But (laughs) logistically it's easier. And I also think for this on the student end, there are students who are, you know, all over the world, right. Um, interviewing from coming from, all over the United States, all over the globe, all different time zones. And I think it just um, definitely is more equitable for Mm. everybody to not have to, you know, endure the cost and travel and all that. Yeah, that definitely helps. So um, now that you're part of the the advising team with us and you're hanging out and you're you're helping us, (laughs) you're helping us get smarter and and working with students, who do you like to work with? Like what, what students are, are, are you excited to work with? All students, all students. Everyone. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, everyone. I mean, I, 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 I would say I particularly love um, those students who need somebody to believe in them and maybe have that imposter syndrome and who don't think that they can do it and maybe were never told they could do it and just need a little bit of reinforcement and somebody to believe in them. Um, You know, that was most of my population at Brown and, you know, they're off doing amazing things in medical school and it's just so rewarding, but I like working with all kinds of students. All of them. And you are going to to be at MappedCon in October in Baltimore. Yeah. Presenting. presenting. Um, You you may also be doing, uh, I'm assuming, some one on one sessions as well with students. So for students interested. And mock MMI. I will be um, helping with mock MMI, which is 
Great. So everyone should come hang out with all of us, uh, the whole yes. Medical School HQ and MAPT team and uh, other team members who aren't announced yet, but we have some exciting news. Uh, it may be out by the time this episode comes out, but we got some exciting news coming um, about who else we're adding to the team and who will be there at MAPTCon in October. Go to mappedcon.com for more information there. Dina, thank you so much for coming on the episode today. Any final words of wisdom? Any final words of wisdom for the student uh, on this path and freaking out? Yeah, just utilize any resources you can. Um, Dr. Gray has put out so many free resources. Have somebody help you with the process um, because I, I would say that a lot of students that aren't successful, the process just didn't have um, any advising or anybody to give them advice along the way. And I think that that's really important because there's just so much intricacy that goes on with med school admissions. All right, there you have it. Again, that's Dina Golini, our newest advisor here at Medical School HQ.net, former MD admissions officer at Stanford University Medical School and advisor in the Brown Medical School as well, their SMP program. So if you want to work with Dina, Christine Crispin, Dr. Christine Crispin, Dr. Scott Wright, Courtney Lewis or Verenia Granham. We have a small team of amazing advisors. Go over to medicalschoolhq.net slash advising. Check out how we can help you today. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.